As you know, this, uh, this Lent, uh, we've been going through a sort of overview of church history. And uh, for those of you who are really thrilled about that, um, both of you are welcome. Um, the rest of you will be glad to know that it's going to be over soon. But there are a couple reasons we've done this, be, beside the fact that uh, you know, it's, it's sort of good information to have. Uh, one is that I, I think it's useful for us to, to see the ways that God has worked over the years, over, in fact, uh, the last 2,000 years, frankly, despite his people, the way he's been able to draw some straight lines with some very crooked sticks, the way he has been able to redeem some really, really horrible, wicked stuff that his people have done often in his name. Uh, The other reason is because I want us to sort of understand who we are now, what it means for us to be an evangelical church here in the 21st century, uh, and, and to, to understand some of the, the partings of the ways historically that have led us to be in this particular, in this particular place. So, as we discussed at, at the very first, the church parted ways both from the synagogue, which was not willing to affirm Jesus as Lord and Savior, uh, and it also parted ways from heretics. And in the first several centuries especially, the church decisively rejected certain heresies that denied things like the full deity of Jesus, that denied his full humanity, that denied the full deity of the Holy Spirit, Uh, heresies that said that God as he was revealed in the Old Testament was sort of a a grubby lesser deity and that we've done much better now that we've had this Jesus who never, you know, really, whose feet never really touched the ground. And then about a thousand years ago, we had what's known as the Great Schism, where you had the Eastern and Western churches divide. They anathematized one another, uh, developed some somewhat different liturgies, maintaining basically the same theology. God has graciously borne fruit in his kingdom through both the Eastern and Western churches over the last thousand years, and he's also had to deal with plenty of fruity people and leaders and movements and churches within both the Eastern and Western traditions. But there's a place where there was a split. And then About 500 years after that, you get the Reformation, where in the Western Church, you have a split between the Roman Catholic and the Protestant churches. At the time, of course, as we always do, people anathematized one another, and the Protestants then themselves went on to develop a diversity of denominations and theological paradigms. Incidentally, it's not like there wasn't diversity within the Catholic Church. I mean, the way this works out in the Catholic Church, frankly, is you get different orders. So you have the Jesuits, and you have the Franciscans, and you have the Carmelites, and, and, uh, and, and you have you know, different uh, preferences in terms of worship style. So it's not like the Roman Catholic Church is all lot marching in lockstep together. They just do it under the Pope. Um, we Protestants don't have to do that. We kind of don't have a Pope, right? You know the joke that the the Protestant don't recognize the Pope, and the Catholics don't recognize the Protestant ministers, and the Baptists don't recognize each other at the liquor store. That sort of thing. So, so what, what developed then in the last couple hundred years, <coughs> excuse me, within the Protestant churches, was an emerging divide between the modernists and the fundamentalists. As we talked about Last week, you had uh, growing within uh, what came to be the mainline denominations an approach toward uh, Scripture, which came to see it as a human creation and 
having some divine elements to it, but having things in it that we would want to edit or correct. You saw an understanding of God's work of salvation in Jesus Christ as something that was true for particular people at a particular time, but might not necessarily be universal, or might only be universal as worked through other religious paradigms. You saw, therefore, a level of discomfort with the idea of spreading the word that Jesus Christ is Lord, because that might not be necessarily welcomed by people who don't already agree. What you saw is also a direction of of efforts in the church, uh, not so much to sharing the good news, but to trying to implement what the kingdom of God ought to be, specifically in regard to political and social structures. As we discussed last week, you basically had a, a split and, and, and really came to, came to a head uh, right uh, before the Depression here in, in the United States, where the fundamentalists were forced out of the major denominations, forced out of leadership, forced out of uh, teaching positions in the seminaries. Basically, the, the fundamentalists stood up and took a stand for truth took a stand against what they saw to be apostasy and wickedness. They took a stand and they lost. And so as a result, fundamentalists went and created their own institutions. Some of them created independent churches. Some started their own denominations that were conservative versions or traditional versions of these uh, denominations that they thought had gone liberal, had gone apostate. And and this didn't just happen in the 20s and 30s. This had happened going back to the middle of the 19th century. Uh, you had the creation of institutions like uh, Bible colleges. So that was the era when things like Moody Bible Institute out in Chicago uh, was founded. Biola, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, came around that time. And you also had the development of basically Christian broadcasting started then. So you had uh, uh, people who, who started their own media empires through, through radio uh, and through, through publishing. A number of, of uh, publications began at that time. And you had a split within the Protestant church. You had the modernists in their corner, and you had the fundamentalists in their corner. And after a while, many in the fundamentalist camp started saying, you know, we like the high view of Scripture. Uh, We like believing that Jesus is Lord and not being embarrassed about that. We like telling people that he's Lord and sharing that good news with people. Um... We like the idea that you're supposed to live your faith out. We like the idea that that's supposed to be a 24-7 thing. You're not just punching the clock on Sunday morning for an hour. We like the idea that our faith is about more than supporting the right political party or or movement. What we don't like so much, though, is some of the cultural phenomena that developed, and I think understandably developed, out of fundamentalism that came to characterize this movement. So a movement that had been kicked out of the major seminaries developed a a certain anti-intellectual quality, Um, a a movement that saw a loosening of moral standards in the mainline denominations came to adopt a very legalistic quality, right? Don't dance, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. There was, you know, you, the the uh, bulletin cover has uh, a funny kind of manifestation of that. But you, you know, you think about Dana Carvey's Church Lady on Saturday Night Live. That's she's sort of the prototypical fundamentalist. So you have a a strong sense of paranoia, frankly, and a, a desire to come ye out from them and be separate. 
to, to maintain the purity of the church in a wicked world where the church, for the most part, has failed to maintain its own purity, maintain its own holiness. So you have what develops as, as a boundary movement, where what's important, this speaking sociologically, is to set up walls, is to set up standards, to set up fences, to set up uh, lists of the, the, the things you have to believe and the things you have to do and the things you have to not do, and you need to make sure you stay clearly within those to protect yourself from being corrupted. And there are folks who are saying, that, um, that all sounds nice, but... Um, Jesus did say this thing um, back in Matthew, and because we are, you know, believers in Scripture, we take a high view of it, we actually do think Jesus said this, when Jesus said, you are the light of the world, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden, and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, instead they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, the, the critique of modernism was that it would put the world above Scripture, that it puts the world's standards above Scripture and correct Scripture by the world. The fundamentalist impulse is to correct the world by Scripture. But these evangelicals were saying, you know, if we're supposed to bring the message of Scripture to this world, there may be a better way of doing it than walling ourselves off into our own little cocoons hiding our light under a bushel. And so instead of running away from the world of the academy, for example, instead of maintaining an anti-intellectual attitude, instead of saying, you show me a Methodist with a college degree and I'll show you a backslider, these folks said, no, we should have people doing scholarship at the highest levels, not just at seminaries, but at Harvard and Yale. We should, instead of running away from the world of mainstream culture, we should have Christians who are involved in producing plays and movies and symphonies. Instead of taking an attitude toward the world that it is going to hell in a handbasket and we need to stay clear of it, we should take an attitude to the world that it's going to hell in a handbasket, but we have an answer for that problem. And so what developed really in the 50s, late 40s and early 50s, sort of in that post-war era, was a number of these evangelical institutions. Fuller Seminary was founded around that time. You had the foundation of the National Association of Evangelicals, which kind of started because the mainline denominations had frozen out evangelicals from the military chaplaincies, and they said, you know, hey, that's, no, there are evangelicals in serving in the military, and there's a place for us there. There's also a place for evangelicals to have a unified voice in places like Washington. You, you have the foundation of publications like Christianity Today. Probably the most important figure of this era was Billy Graham. You know, the, you could tell the difference between a fundamentalist and an evangelical by what he thought of Billy Graham. The, the fundamentalist thought that Billy Graham was a heathen and an apostate because Billy Graham would have the local Methodist bishop on stage with him if he wanted to pray. In fact, he'd have a local Catholic bishop if he wanted to be there. Billy Graham wasn't putting up walls. He was trying to bring people in regardless of where they were at. And he wanted to work with local churches. Whoever wanted to work with him, he'd want to work with them. The fundamentalist thought that that was absolutely, absolutely irresponsible. 
And so what you find then is not only a difference in impulse between evangelicals and fundamentalists, but you do find emerging a difference in affiliation. Not only did evangelicals found their own denominations and and identify with those, but you also have evangelicals, uh, independent churches, probably the biggest uh, place this shows up actually doesn't come until the 70s and 80s when you have large churches uh, like Grace Fellowship, which planted us. This is the era of the megachurch arising. Most of those and it were independent churches, or if they were affiliated with a denomination, like, for example, Saddleback, uh, at Rick Warren's church out in, in Orange County, uh, is a Southern Baptist church, but you wouldn't know it unless you really dug around to find the information out. You, you have uh, churches with a, that grow large and have an independent quality. You also have the development of parachurch organizations like Young Life and InterVarsity, Campus Crusade, uh, organizations that are saying, you know, less important than our particular denominational identity, less important than exactly which church we're at on Sunday morning, is the fact that we are spreading the good news of Jesus Christ in the places where it needs to be spread. Frankly, Jim Rayburn founded Young Life because the people at his church wanted to have a youth ministry but didn't like the idea that the kids would be smoking when they came to the youth ministry. So he said, you know what, I want to start up a youth ministry where the kids can stand outside and smoke first, and we're not going to make them feel like Jesus hates them because they smoke. I want to bring in the kids that feel left out, feel shut out, that feel like they're not good enough. And so you had evangelicals in their own independent churches, and you had evangelicals in their own denominations, the smaller denominations that broke away. And you also, uh, at the same time, though, and this is important, and this is something that those of us from the independent church world can often miss, you also had evangelicals that stayed within the mainline denominations that felt God calling them to stay there to be in the minority, frankly, to be what's sometimes known as the confessing churches, a voice within the churches. So uh, our friend David Neff, who was here uh, last year, he was the editor of Christianity Today, and he also is an Episcopalian. He's not in one of the breakaway Anglican denominations that's, that's traditional and evangelical. He is in the Episcopal Church, and he has been. Uh, basically since uh, mid-adulthood, young mid-adulthood, because he feels like that's where God is, is calling him to be. We have friends in the mainline denominations all over this area, frankly, who feel like God has called them to be a faithful voice for uh, an understanding of the gospel where it really does matter that Jesus died for our sins, where we do read the Bible with an attitude of humility and not judgment. And so what that means then is that evangelicalism isn't just defined by institutions. It's not just defined by denominations. It's not just defined by a particular affiliation. Evangelical, an evangelical identity has to do really with an attitude. And it is an attitude that rejects both modernism and fundamentalism. So, for example, when reading Genesis 1 and 2, right, the story of creation, the modernist approach to that is to say, well, now we know that God couldn't create the world in seven days, and we have the carbon dating, and we know that couldn't happen. So the important thing we need to do with that is recognize the importance of the environment, of environmental integrity. We really need to take an attitude of creation care. And the real message of Genesis is that the the world is a beautiful place, and we need to take care of it. 
Fundamentalists would read that and say, hell no. It says God created the world in six days. He created the world in six days. What's your problem? Can you not read? And now I'm going to make a big museum where I have pictures of uh, uh, dioramas of cavemen and dinosaurs to show that they were there together because they must have been. An evangelical approach to that is to say, you know, maybe God created the world in six days, maybe he didn't, but that doesn't really seem to be the important thing in this passage. And in fact, if, if we're going to try to bring the gospel to a hurting world that needs it, probably we don't need to make them believe that the earth was created in six days first. Like That may not be the best kind of leading move to demand that you adhere to a 6,000-year-old 6, 6, creation before you, you want to share Jesus with them. So, you know, yeah, some of us believe that, some don't, but probably the more important thing we read here is that God is God and all the other deities around them are not, that this is written in a time where, you know, you had competing ideas, you had a, an era of, of religious pluralism. It's not like we're the first people who have come along and found that other people believe different things about God. And this text seems to make it clear that there's only one real God, and he's the true God, and the others are false gods, and you really need to be worshiping the real God. And, you know, what's less important than how God created the world or how long it took him to do that is the fact that he gets credit for it. So if you believe he used evolutionary processes, that's fine. The main thing is that you give God credit as the good creator of the good world. And so if you're trying to share with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, and they say, yeah, but the Bible says that the you know, world was created in six days. How silly is that? And you, 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 you don't respond by saying, well, the Bible says it, and that settles it. You say, yeah, it does, and, you know, there are different ways to read that. Here's what I think is important. Coming up is Passover, right? So you have that story of the, the parting of the Red Sea where Charlton Heston puts out a staff and the, the seas part. You know, the, the modernist says, well, of course, that couldn't happen. Water doesn't do that. So we need to recognize that that's just a story about God miraculously rescuing these people. Really, this is a story about political liberation. It's kind of funny. If you, if you see the old uh, Ten Commandments movie, not the old one, the, the one that, that Cecil B. DeMille did, did after the, in, in the post-war period, uh, often they don't show this, but the, it starts off with him stepping out onto a stage and basically explaining that the story of the Exodus is, is an anti-communist manifesto. That the writer of Exodus, uh, you know, however many thousand years ahead of time, was anticipating the rise of Marxism-Leninism and wanted to make it clear that, that uh, God didn't put up with that. But you get the same thing, frankly, uh, among a, a modernist or, or liberal or progressive readings of that story, which say, yeah, this is really a story about liberation. This is a story about God liberating people from captivity. And so what that means is anytime people are under oppression, God wants to liberate them. Anytime one people is oppressed by another, God is going to take the side of the oppressed against the oppressor. Fundamentalists are going to say, no. God parted the Red Sea and the Israelites walked on water through it. And even though you say that there's no archaeological data that would indicate that that many people walked in that place for 40 years in that time, the Bible says that I believe it and that settles it. Evangelicals look at that and we say, you know, yeah, the, the numbers seem to be kind of big. On the other hand, as we discussed when we taught through numbers, it was, gosh, it was like five years ago, wasn't it? 
Time flies when you're preaching Romans, you know. Uh, you know, as we talked about it, you know, maybe the numbers actually referred to the, the size of, of, uh, of, of divisions, like military divisions, as opposed to actual numbers of people. So maybe it was just tens of thousands instead of millions. But, but, but again, the, the, the point doesn't seem to be either that the mo- most important thing you're supposed to understand from this is that God can, in fact, cause supernatural events. And the most important thing from this is not to say that uh, God would... Uh, always take the side of people who are being hurt or oppressed by another people. After all, oftentimes people find themselves hurt or oppressed by other people because they tried to oppress them and lost. But when we look at Scripture, it seems like this Exodus story gets picked up by the New Testament writers as a story about salvation, as a story about God rescuing his people out of whatever muck they've gotten themselves into. And so this picture of the Exodus seems to be pointing to a story of Jesus rescuing his people, dragging them through water, you know, it's like that baptism thing, uh, and, and taking them out of slavery to sin into new life. That seems to be the, the big deal. So, you know, exactly how God did that, we're not, we're not really going to fight about that. That just doesn't, you know, I, it's been said that, you know, a, 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 you know, I, I an evangelical perspective is to say, I love Jesus, but I'm not pissed off about it. So that's, I think, the kind of disposition, the kind of identity we can have as evangelicals. We can be evangelicals in an independent evangelical church that's clearly identified itself as evangelical, which we are. You can be evangelical in a denomination that clearly identifies itself as evangelical. And you can be evangelical in a denomination that doesn't. You can be in a church that doesn't identify itself as evangelical, but you believe that God has called you to be part of that community, and you can faithfully love him and serve him as what you are, where that is. As you know, this, I think, seems to be the story of what's happening to me. I mean, usually you end up becoming a faithful evangelical within a denomination that you're in already, and you feel like God's calling you to stay. In my case, I think God's, for whatever reason, importing me into the Episcopal Church, not giving up at all my identity as an evangelical, my commitments to the fact that Scripture is entirely trustworthy, that Jesus' atonement is not something that's optional, that we need to turn to faith in Him, that we're supposed to live our lives for His glory. But you can be evangelical anywhere, and we can be evangelical anywhere. I think that's the bottom line of this for us. Let me pray. Lord God, we are grateful for the history that you've worked out. And we are truly grateful for the fact that we, as a church, have had the privilege of serving you as we are, as a faithful evangelical congregation, for all this time. We pray that we would continue to be faithful as a community and as individuals, to bear witness to the power of your work in our lives, that we would be people who read Scripture with an eye toward how it makes sense both in its context and today. We'd be people who love Jesus without being jerks about it. We pray that this would be to your glory and the growth of your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.